Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for being a God who loves and cares for us, who speaks to us, who is speaking to us even now in the midst of all the chaos in the world around us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who encourages us and uplifts us through your Ruach HaKodesh, through your Holy Spirit, who breathes new life into us and moves mightily and powerfully, not only in our lives, but through our lives for those around us. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard and received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. And Father, breathe new life into us that as we leave this place today, we will leave transformed and ready to impact the world for the kingdom of Messiah and the good news of Yeshua Mashiach. B'Shem Yeshua Mashiach In the name of Yeshua our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. So this week we read Parsha Pinchas, uh, which comes from Numbers 25, verse 10 through 30, verse 1. If you have a traditional English translation like a KJV, NIV, NASB, something like that, you'll notice that it, it says the last verse is 2940. Uh, that 30, what we see in the Jewish ordering is 30, verse 1 is chapter 29, verse 40. Uh, but nonetheless, the Parsha this week uh, that we read about is uh, dealing with a lot of different things. First is the promise of the continuation of the priesthood upon Pinchas the son of Eleazar. Now, Pichas was already a Kohen. He was already a son of Eleazar, the, uh, the Kohen at the time, the son of Aaron. He was a grandson of Aaron himself. And we see that through his action in, uh, in attacking Zimri and killing Zimri and, and the Moabite woman who came into the camps, that he brought into the camps, that he boldly and arrogantly drug in front of the tabernacle, in front of Moses, in front of the nation of Israel, uh, in spite of the reality that it was sin uh, and that it was a part of worship to, uh, in an uh, idolatrous fashion, we see that the, uh, the, the priesthood, because of uh, Pinchas's uh, zealous nature, because of his yearning and passion for the Lord, uh, brought an end to the plague and the curse that was breaking out among Israel because of the sin of the Moabites among their, the, the midst of Israel. Uh, and so God blesses him with a continuation of the priesthood through him and his descendancy, him and his children. Whereas before that, it could have gone through any of Eliezer's children uh, or through any of the other priests uh, if Eliezer was to die. And so now the priesthood is definitively linked to Pinchas because of his zeal for the Lord. But we also see uh, the second census of Israel being numbered. Uh, this is the counting or the numbering of the second generation preparing to take the promises of God, preparing, preparing to take the promised land. We see the commission of Joshua to take Moses' place. And we see the Moedim, the appointed times discussed again, in particular in great detail, the sacrificial service that was in part with each and every one of the Moedim. We also see the daughters of... Uh, um, lost his name. It's uh, like 17 syllables, but nonetheless, we, we see these three daughters who their father has died. They aren't married. He doesn't have any sons. They approach Moses and says, it's not really fair that our father's name be blotted out of the inheritance in our people because he died without sons. And so the Lord hears their cry and blesses them and says, all right, they get an inheritance that would have gone to, uh, to their father, that would have gone to uh, the sons had he had sons, and that they just have to make sure that they continue to stay married or that if they get married, they marry within their tribe. So that that inheritance doesn't then go to another tribe. And this becomes an eternal promise or an eternal blessing to all of those who do not have sons. And we see, you know, a lot of times when people talk about the Tanakh or the, the Old Testament, there's this idea that the God of the Old Testament is sexist. 
And it's really not. It happened that in society at that point, it was predominantly a, uh, a, a masculine-driven society, and he wasn't pushing women aside. And, you know, we see Paul in 1 Corinthians talk about how, uh, and it's often taken away in the context that a woman shouldn't yell out in, in the congregation and should wait till she gets home to talk. And, uh, and when we read these things out of context, it looks like God is, like, just completely pushing women aside. But it's not at all the case, and it wasn't the case with what Paul's saying, and if you have questions about that, feel free to ask me later, and I'll explain further. Um, but we see with situations like this, the beauty of the heart of God for all of his children, and the beauty of the promise that goes not just to the men of Israel, but to the men and women of Israel, and the inheritance that is being a part of the people of God. And so we see that continuation there uh, as they approach. However, Today we're going to intentionally focus a little bit different than we normally do. We're going to actually focus specifically on our Haftarah Parsha this week, which comes from 1 Kings 18, 46 through 19, 21, and entails one of the most well-known aspects of Elijah's life. Elijah is a prophet with, within whom Adonai places the anointing of his Ruach HaKodesh, of his Holy Spirit, and sent out, uh, was sent out as a prophet to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Keep in mind, this is just a few chapters. Elijah appears on the scene just a few chapters after uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom of Israel into two separate kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. It's only a handful of chapters later. So we only take a few years, realistically, a few really terrible kings in the, the northern kingdom for Israel to go so far, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel to go so far outside of the will of God that he starts to send prophets to them to declare destruction coming on them. Uh, but more specifically, as always, the prophecy wasn't about destruction as much as it was about teshuvah, about repentance, about return. So here we see Elijah. He's a prophet to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Almost immediately after the northern kingdom broke off under King Jeroboam, they were led to idolatry by the kings of Israel. Elijah's ministry began during the reign of King Ahab, who for all intents and purposes was probably one of the worst kings of Israel and who had absolutely no respect for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By this point, Ahab and Jezebel have uh, killed off most of the Lord's prophets who have come to them to proclaim a need for teshuvah, a need for return to the Lord, a need for repentance. And it is at this point in which we see Elijah in a mindset of crisis. He has dedicated his life to the service of Adonai as a prophet following the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh. Yet, uh, now his life is in grave danger. He is disheartened. He is afraid. He is angry. And he's on the run, and he cries out to God to just let him die. And this is where we find ourselves at in 1 Kings 19, verse 5. Now, if you pay attention to the narrative of Elijah's life, just a chapter before this, we see the whole interaction with the prophets of Baal who are trying to worship, get Israel to worship Baal, and Elijah comes in and goes, whoa, 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 what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Clearly, this isn't what we're supposed to be doing. We serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the Baalim, not any of, not Molech, not any of these others, and he goes, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's see whose God is real. You get your sacrifice together, and I'll get my sacrifice together, and we'll see which God is actually powerful enough to do this, right? And this is the situation where he cries out, they're, they're, the, the Baalim, the prophets of Baalim are, are crying out and screaming and, 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 and praying that the, the Baalim would ignite their, their offering into fire, and nothing's happened, nothing's happened. And it's one of my favorite lines from Elijah where he goes, what, is your God in the bathroom? Like, what's going on here? If you read the text, that's what he says. Is he in the bathroom? Did he get lost? What's happening here? And so then Elijah goes, and he has his sacrifice set up, and he goes, I'll tell you what. 
we'll take this one step further, right? It's like it's a game of horse, except they're not making any shots, and he's getting ready to make the grandest. And they've got the, the offering lined up, and he goes, I'll tell you what, just keep bringing water. Let's soak this thing down so that it couldn't possibly burn. And then we'll see what God does. And then miraculously, the divine fire from heaven comes and consumes the offering, just as we see with the tabernacle and the temple and so on. And the, the fire consumes. So we know that Elijah is fully aware of the power and the presence of God. We know that Elijah is fully aware that he serves a God who can do well beyond anything that we as humans could ever imagine for his own purpose and his own, his own kingdom. But yet here we find ourselves in chapter 19, just a chapter later, with Elijah struggling in a very real way. Verse 5 says, Then he lays down and slept under the broom bush. Then behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. So he looked, and to his surprise, there by his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again. Then the angel of Adonai came again a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, because the journey is too much for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and in the strength of that mill, 40 days and 40 nights went to Horeb, the mountain of God. When he arrived there at the cave, he spent the night there. Then behold, the word of Adonai came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous for Adonai's have oath, he said. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left." And they are seeking my life to take it. This word here uh, for zeal that is used in the Hebrew is the same Hebrew word that's used in Parsha Pinchas in the Torah. And speaking of uh, Pinchas, Phineas' zeal for the Lord. It's also the same uh, word that's used. It's the same root word for the word jealousy as in the Lord is jealous for his people. It's also the same word that's used in the end of the account of Pinchas where it says that, uh, that the blessing of the priest was placed upon Pinchas because of the act that he did that stopped the plague it stopped the lord's passion for his people uh the the idea of trying to bring them back that word passion that's translated there in the english is also the same root word that we get the word zeal from we recognize that zeal and jealousy are really from the same root it's really the same thing it's just from two different perspectives jealousy is something that comes from anger zeal is something that comes from a passion that's greater than we could imagine this is where the, the uh, things really begin to get interesting in this account of Elijah's life. This is where Elijah begins to learn one of what should be the most important and powerful spiritual lessons imaginable. But this is also where we begin to see Elijah's experience uh, as a servant of the Lord, uh, as a, a relatively near mirror image of Moses. Remember that in the Torah it says Moses, that the Lord would send a prophet like Moses who would lead his people. Obviously speaking of Yeshua in the future, but we see that Elijah served in almost a Moses-like role. Elijah serves as a messianic foreshadowing. Elisha serves later as a messianic foreshadowing. And so we see Elijah's experience here as almost a near mirror image of Moses's. So Elijah has ran away from Ahab and Jezebel because they are refusing uh, to listen to the word of the Lord. They are refusing to turn their hearts into Shavah back to the Lord and they are leading Israel even further away from God. But they have also turned their hearts so viciously against God God, that they are killing off the prophets of God uh, that God sent them. And Elijah thinks he is all that is left. He, he, he's looking around and he thinks he's the only prophet that's left. Kind of reminds me of Lot and his daughters as they left the Sodom and Gomorrah as it was being uh, completely demolished by fire from heaven. And the daughters end up uh, sleeping with their father because they thought this was the end. There's no life left. We're all that's left. It didn't, they, they couldn't see anything else. 
And so they try to continue a line for their family, for their father. Um, and, and so we see kind of that same mentality in Elijah. He thinks he's all that's left. There's none left besides him. He's now broken. He is disheartened. He is angry, and he is ready to just throw in the towel. But God meets Elijah where he is. An angel appears to Elijah and gives him some bread and water to eat so that he can be strengthened for the journey that lays ahead of him. Then the Lord has him travel to Mount Horeb, and it took him 40 days and 40 nights to arrive there. Now, this is where things begin to get really interesting. Uh, this is where we begin to see Elijah not only walking in the shoes of Moses, but having some of the same exact experiences as Moses. If you remember, Mount Horeb is where Moses encountered the burning bush. Uh, it, this is also the mountain we know best by the name of Mount Sinai. This is the very mountain where the nation of Israel saw the divine presence of God and heard the voice of God speak forth the Aseret Hadibrut, the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. It took Moses 40 years in Egypt and another 40 years in the wilderness before he encountered God on Mount Sinai. He also brought Israel back to the very same mountain, just as the Lord promised he would do, in order for Israel to encounter the presence of God there. Then, after Israel encountered the presence of Adonai at Mount Sinai, Moses ascended the mountain to hear from the Lord to receive the Torah and spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, which he also ended up doing a second time after the golden calf incident. Interestingly enough, Mount Horeb or Mount Zion Sinai, sorry, is also where Paul spent time after first coming to faith in Yeshua, as we see mentioned in Galatians 1.17. As if this connection to Sinai isn't already enough to draw our attention and make things interesting, Jewish tradition says that the cave that is mentioned in verse 9 where Elijah stayed and slept for the night in order to regain his strength after his journey is also the very same place as the cleft of the rock that Moses was shielded in as the presence of God passed before him uh, post the Exodus, particularly in Exodus 33 uh, when he went back to receive the second tablets. As a believer in the 21st century, I can kind of feel Elijah's pain up to this point. Elijah was called by God in one of the gloomiest points in Israel's history. The kingdom of David has been split into two for some time now. The northern kingdom has completely forsaken the God of their forefathers. The kings of Israel have intentionally and happily led the northern tribes astray. God has called out Elijah, and as is the case with all prophets, he called him out to proclaim a message of repentance, a message of teshuvah to the broken and those with fallen hearts. Yet the hearts of Ahab and Jezebel turn colder, and they kill off every prophet of Adonai they can get their hands on. We are reading about events immediately after the great miracle of Elijah's soak and wet sacrifice being consumed by divine fire, while Ahab's sacrifices to idols sat cold and rank. Yet, Elijah has lost all confidence and all will to even live. The very people God has called him to, to minister to want nothing but his head on a platter. They want him dead, and they are killing every other prophet they can find to get to him. I don't know about you, but this sounds a lot like what faith in Yeshua today feels like. The whole world is crashing down around our feet. We have a great burden, a great calling to share the good news of Messiah Yeshua with the world around us, uh, but the world doesn't want anything to do with us. The world is so fallen, so far gone, that they are literally fulfilling Yeshua's prophetic words. They will call what is right wrong, what is right, what is wrong right. The world around us doesn't care about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Heck, most of the people around us, truthfully, only care about themselves. We're seeing Matthew 24 fulfilled before our very eyes. And if you are like me, we can definitely feel for Elijah. 
I feel his pain and sorrow. I feel his anxiety and anger. I can get his why should I even care anymore attitude that we read here in 1 Kings 19. But why did Elijah find himself on Mount Horeb? Was it because this is where God wanted him to be? Not specifically, but because he needed a wake-up call. He needed a swift kick in the rear. What is it God asks him? Why are you here, Elijah? What are you doing here? As I would word it myself, and I think God often talks to me in this kind of a way, hey, dummy, what are you doing here? You have a job to do. Time is of the essence. Souls are at stake. Not just physical lives. We are doing, uh, what are you doing whining here? Crying about the pains and struggles you're facing. Do you think I don't see this coming within uh, uh, when I filled you with, the, with my spirit? What are you doing here? You think God isn't seeing everything that's going on? You think he didn't already know it when he called us to this time period to proclaim his message of salvation? Do you think he wasn't aware of how horrible the world around us was going to be? In fact, he gives us time and time again, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that tell us exactly what we are facing today. And it's not unlike the prophecy that Israel experienced before Elijah, before the kingdom split, before Israel went down the road to idolatry as we read in the, the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy. If I could only count the number of times that I have personally felt God asked me the same exact question when my mind and heart were in the exact same place. Elijah's response was basically to say, uh, was basically to say that he had fear that his zeal for the Lord, his call for the Lord was futile. It was a waste. All he could focus on was the loss. The assumption that he was all that was left that stood for the Lord in the northern kingdom. He couldn't get out of his own head, and so God had to give him a wake-up call. We go on to 1 Kings 19, verse 11 now. says, Then he said, Come out and stand on, mount, on, on the mount before Adonai. Behold, Adonai was passing by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountain and shattering cliffs before Adonai. But Adonai was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But Adonai was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But Adonai was not in the fire. After the fire... There was a soft whisper of a voice. As soon as Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then all of a sudden, a voice addressed him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Again, the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for Adonai Zevod, he said. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they are seeking to take my life. Then Adonai said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael king of, over Aram, and anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha or Elisha son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah as prophet in your place. It shall come to pass that whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu will slay, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, uh, Elisha will slay. Yet I have preserved 7,000 in Israel whose knee have not bowed to Baal and whose mouth has not kissed him. Now, before we go further, I want to point this out. The Lord gives Elijah a directive to anoint three separate individuals, a king of Aram, a king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and then to anoint Elisha or Elisha as his successor. Out of those three, he only anoints Elisha. Elisha is who anoints the other two. Elijah never got around to doing so before the Lord took him up. 
As we talk about, uh, talked about a few moments ago, there is a distinct connection and correlation between Elijah's experience here in 1 Kings 19 and Moses' experience at Mount Sinai. The correlation is a bit of a hybrid of both the first time Moses was at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai and encountered the burning bush, as well as when Moses brought Israel to Mount Sinai and the nation as a whole encountered the power and presence of God uh, in Exodus 19, and again, Exodus 33, when Moses went back into the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai and he he says show me your glory i don't know if you saw the correlation right offhand and but let's take a look at these verses again in fact the phrase that adonai passed before him as we see in first kings 19 11, uh, is the exact same phrase that is used in exodus 33 22 dealing with the presence of god passing before moses when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock First Kings nineteen eleven through 13 again says, Then he said, Come out and stand on the mountain before Adonai. Behold, Adonai was passing by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountain and shattering cliffs before Adonai. But Adonai was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But Adonai was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But Adonai was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a soft whisperer of a voice. As soon as Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then all of a sudden, a voice addressed him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Exodus nineteen seventeen through 19, as we read every single week in our Torah service. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the lowest part of the mountain. Now the entire Mount Sinai was in smoke because Adonai descended upon it in fire. The smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked greatly. When the sound of the shofar grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him with a thunderous sound. Now, the major difference in Moses' and Israel's encounter at Mount Sinai and Elijah's encounter is in the way the voice of God spoke. Notice in Exodus 19, it says that God spoke with a thunderous sound. The bat kol, the voice of God, was loud, it was bold, it was an intense encounter. The purpose was to grip the hearts and lives of Israel. The entire nation had to hear him speak the Aseret Hadibrot. Whereas here in 1 Kings 19, it was just Elijah that was needing to hear him. But more specifically, it was Elijah needing to learn a valuable lesson. Elijah listened closely to the wind and there was nothing. He listened closely to the earthquake and there was nothing. He listened closely to the fire and there was nothing. But Elijah had to listen intentionally close to hear the still small voice. God wasn't trying to hide his voice from Elijah. He wasn't trying to toy with him or, or to trick him. He was trying to teach Elijah something. Elijah is mentally and emotionally beat down. Anybody felt like that before? He's broken. He has no resolve left. He is feeling as though he is the only prophet. Heck, for that matter, the only faithful and righteous person to Adonai left in Israel. Ahab and Jezebel have killed everyone else. The enemy has gained the victory and Elijah is all that's left. What's the point to him even continuing? What's the point to him trying anymore? Elijah is all in his head and God is trying to break him of this. In order for Elijah to have heard the still small voice, he had to shut up. Not just vocally, but mentally too. He had to get out of his own head, out of his own fear and anger, and he had to listen intently to the voice of God. God could have easily spoken through the wind. He could have easily spoken uh, through the, the, the earthquake. He could have easily spoken through the fire. But that wasn't what Elijah needed, and God knew this. Elijah had seen the power of God already. He had heard God speak to him numerous times at this point. God knew that Elijah, what Elijah needed was to go back to the beginning, literally the beginning of the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, and to experience the power of God in a new way. 
He needed to get out of his own head. He needed to stop complaining and whining, to stop worrying about beating himself up. He needed to understand that the fight isn't a fight of flesh and blood, but of spiritual power and principalities. Elijah had to get out of his own way so that he could hear and see what God was doing. The same is true for us. The world around us is a train wreck these days. If Elijah thought he had it bad, he didn't know anything. Look at the world around us. Look at the mess we're facing. Jihadi, Islam, uh, global pandemics, global rioting, rapid rise and fall of governmental leaders, the body of Messiah being attacked, divided, and even many falling away. Believers are being killed all over the world. Just look at what's happening with Boko Haram in China or even in the Middle East. The world as we know it is collapsing, and we are drawing closer and closer to the return of Messiah day after day. I don't know about you, but I know I can, I can absolutely relate to Elijah these days. But God, uh, they've eliminated all the rest, and I'm the only one standing for you. Anybody felt like that before? You hang around your family, you go to work, you go to school, you go to wherever. But I'm the only one. Nobody else cares about you. But just like Elijah, we still have work to do. We still have a great harvest to reap. We still have a God who is speaking today. He's still breathing life into us. He is still telling us to get out of our own way, to shut up and listen to him. He's calling us to dig into the still small voice and listen intently and closely. This isn't because he's got laryngitis and can't speak loud. It's because listening for the still small voice requires a certain depth of closeness to the presence of the Lord. It requires a constant dwelling in his presence. It requires us to return day in and day out to Mount Sinai and encountering his presence and his glory. We go to Matthew 24, verse 4. Yeshua answered them, Be careful that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must happen. But it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places but all these things are only the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you over to persecution and will kill you. You will be hated by all the nations because of my name and then many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is the catch. This good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. He doesn't say the end will come and then we won't have to worry about preaching anymore. He doesn't say when things get tough, go and hide. He says we continue to spread the good news of the kingdom and proclaim it to the whole world as a testimony. And then the end will come. Folks, I truly believe these are, uh, that these days that we live in are the end of days. I believe we are facing the same crises that Elijah did, but on a much grander scale. It is just as easy for us to find ourselves lost in our own thoughts and anxiety, our own fears and doubts, and our own desire to run far, far away from it all. It is so easy to feel like we're the only ones who care, the only ones who, love, uh, who have a love for God, the only ones who are walking faithfully and sharing the good news. It's so easy in these days of dissension, division, and brokenness to throw in the towel and only worry about ourselves. But I want to call your attention to the last verse from Yeshua. And again, we just said this. This good news of, of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. 
and then the end will come. Much like Elijah, we have a job to do. We have a message of repentance and salvation we must share in the world. And uh, indeed with everyone we possibly can. We can't hide in a cave and sulk. We can't throw our hands up and tell God we're done. Honestly, the biggest difference between Elijah and Moses and this narrative is that every time Israel sinned, Moses interceded for them. Whereas when Israel sinned, Elijah ran and threw in the towel. If our current political and social climate in America tells us anything, it's that the end is much closer than we have ever imagined. Messiah's return is imminent and our job is still the same. We must hear the heart of what Adonai is saying here to Elijah because the message is still the same for us today as it was for him. We have to shut up and listen. No matter how much it feels like we're alone, no matter how many die or fall away, the Lord has many, many, many more willing to lay their lives down for the name of Yeshua. And even at that, if all else fails, the rocks will cry out. We need not hide in the cave. We need not only be enveloped in the presence. We need only to be enveloped in the presence of God to hear that still small voice. We must be close to him at all times. The issue for Elijah was he felt distant. He knew God gave him a call and a purpose, but when he tried to do it, it felt like everything fell down around his feet. And he wanted to run away. As a matter of fact, he did. But God brought him where? He didn't bring him back to Israel. He didn't bring them back to Ahab and, and Jezebel. He didn't bring them back to, uh, to, to the people that were trying to slaughter him. He didn't take them to the graves of the prophets that had already died. He took them back to the beginning. The very beginning of the nation of Israel. The very beginning of the nation as a whole being made into the people of God. He took them back to Mount Sinai. And in a way, he renewed his covenant with the people of Israel as he spoke to Elijah. As we prepare to close, I want to call our worship team back up to the stage. And I want to ask you a couple of questions. Considering the world that we live in and the time frame of what's going on around us, considering how rapidly things are dissolving all around us, what is it that you are running from? What is the call the Lord has placed on your heart, the word He has given you? Are you struggling to hear Him in the chaos and turmoil we're facing? Is the world around us being inflamed right now, making it harder for you to push into His presence and hear His voice? Is everyone around us rejecting the Lord, making it that much harder for you to have a yearning and a desire and a passion to see the lost saved? Is it causing us to create bigger division between ourselves and other believers, bigger division between the the different parts of the body of Messiah, bigger division in our own congregations and communities? Is it causing us to drive bigger wedges? Because of our own anger, our own anxiety, our own fears, our own worries, our own desires, and our own running from what God has called us to do. The call is the same. The message is the same to us today that it was to Elijah when we go all the way back to the reality of Elijah being called by the Lord uh, to, to Mount Sinai as the Lord calls him back to the very beginning and tells him, I have something greater for you in store. The words that, uh, the, the reality that the Lord was teaching Elijah was that he had to shut up and listen. He had to shut up, stop complaining, stop bickering, stop uh, 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 constantly whining and, 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 and acting like nobody else in the world cares. Because all that does is it creates a barrier and a separation between us and the Lord. The Lord said, I need you to draw closer to my presence, not further away. He says, shut up and listen, draw close. 
and know my presence. As the song we sang earlier in worship today, the song Waymaker says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Just because you and I are battling with our own doubts, our own fears, and our own anxiety, just because you and I feel like nobody's listening and, and, and God isn't moving through us doesn't mean He isn't. And we've got to get out of our own way. We've got to get out of God's way and let Him move through us. Let Him speak through us because the message is the same today that it was in Elijah's day, that it was in Jeremiah's day, that it was in Isaiah's day. It's the same as it was in Daniel's day. It's the same as it was coming out of Yochanan Hanmatbil, John the Immerser's mouth. Repent, for the Lord is near. Repent because it's time for us to come back to God. This is a, na- a message given to us to bring to the nations, to Jew and Gentile alike. And it's a message that we have to be willing to die for not hide in a cave somewhere hoping nobody comes after us. We have to be willing to lay it all on the line because God himself came in human form and laid his life on the line for us. We have to be willing to emulate him so that the lost can be found, so that the world around us can know the truth of his salvation. Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, we thank you that no matter where we are in life, no matter how much we are struggling, no matter how much pain and anguish we are experiencing, that you do not stop working in our midst, that you do not forget or forsake us, that you do not leave us, but that you are constantly calling us back into your presence, that you're constantly working in our midst, that we will know your presence, that we will recognize and hear your voice, and that we will speak your truth, the truth of your salvation, the truth of the kingdom of Mashiach to each and every person that you place in our path. Father, keep us from the grip of the enemy trying to tempt us and torment us with fear and anxiety, trying to hold us back from what you want to do through our lives. But Father, to teach us to walk in the mantle of your Holy Spirit as we see with most of Elijah's life, as we see with Elisha carrying that mantle on, as we see with the Talmudim, the disciples, as we see in Paul's life, as we see throughout the book of Acts. Father, use us today for the good and the glory of your holy name, of your kingdom. Remove the fear and the anxiety. And Lord, speak into us the same words that you spoke to Elijah. To Elijah sorry. What are you doing here? rather than out there sharing the word. What are you doing hiding in my presence, hiding from the world, hiding in this shadow, in this cave, in this place of your own feelings and emotions, rather than sharing with the lost and preaching the good news? Father, we thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you that your word reigns true and that you are ever speaking, ever boldly into our lives. B'Shem Yeshua In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen and amen.